The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21, as we consider this subject of walking in the fullness of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, familiar words coming in this very practical section of the epistle to the Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6 are really the application for the most part of the doctrinal section of the book in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and here we are in the middle of Ephesians 5. And let us give heed to God's word at verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Father, we ask for help as we hear your word, as we seek to apply it to our lives. Please let it sink deeply into our hearts that we might be changed by it. Through Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. Lord, please help me to do your will. Haven't we all prayed that kind of prayer? Help me to do your will and help me to have the power by the Spirit to carry it out. Help me to know your will. One of the distinctive characteristics of Christian is that he or she knows that he belongs to the Lord. We belong to God. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. And so we were bought by the precious blood of the Lamb and were called to live now as belonging to Him. But when it comes to, to understanding God's will, Christians often make a mistake associated with that. People often think of knowing God's will in terms of knowing the future in some kind of comprehensive way, as God knows all things. Somehow knowing the hidden counsel of God, the secret things of God, being able to somehow peel back the curtain of God's inscrutable purposes and to know what tomorrow will bring. James, in his epistle, makes it very clear that this is not the kind of thing that the Bible means when it speaks of the Christian knowing God's will. James In chapter 4, verse 11, is speaking about them living righteous lives. And and he says, now, listen, you who say tomorrow or today we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. 
What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. We do not know, James says, what tomorrow may bring. And even if you have plans, you should hold those plans lightly, saying before God, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. But in our text in Ephesians 5, the apostle Paul gives us clear commands from God about understanding God's will in another sense and in the calling to walk in the power of the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. This section of Ephesians comes in the middle of this practical application part, and Paul has spoken extensively about putting off and putting on. Because of our new life in Christ, now we have power because of Jesus Christ dwelling in us to put off the flesh, to put off all kinds of old sins, and to put on Christ-likeness, to put on the virtues of Christ. And so there are all these specific exhortations and commands about putting off and putting on. And now Paul is coming to speak specifically soon to husbands and wives and parents and children and to masters and slaves. But here we think about the fact that we can't talk about sanctification. We can't talk about Christ-likeness without talking about understanding and knowing God's will, as Paul describes it here, and being filled with the Spirit. So I'd like us to look at our text under three headings. The first is this. To walk in the Spirit is to be careful about our walk. To walk in the Spirit is to be careful about our, quote, walk. Be very careful, then, how you live not as unwise, but as wise. Throughout Ephesians, Paul has frequently used the word walk. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he says, they used to walk in the ways in which you used to live, if you have the NIV, but it's literally walk, when you followed the ways of this world. He talks about their past sinful ways of life. And then in chapter 4, verse 17, He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And he's describing the new way that Christians are called to walk in contradiction to the way pagans live. Chapter 4, verse 1, he said that they are to walk worthy of the calling they have received. Chapter 5, verse 1, they are to walk in love just as Christ loved us. And then the nearest reference to our text comes in chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. All these references to the walk that they are to carry out. And now he's adding to, to what he's already said about how they're not to walk and how they are to walk. He's adding this idea, be careful about how you walk. Take this very seriously. Don't be haphazard about it. And then he adds, not as unwise, but as wise. Well, we could certainly talk about many examples of how not to walk. And as we think about it, all of us in our lives are careful about the things that matter the most to us. 
if, if your job is what counts the most to you, then you think about it a lot. Maybe you think about it even the day before you go to work and you're thinking about what you need to do at work. Or maybe you're, maybe you're concerned about a particular hobby. And at work, instead of thinking about your work, you're daydreaming about the hobby when you get off work and you go home and you have time to do that. If you're a Phillies fan, you probably make sure that you know every day, you at least take a moment to glance at the sports page to see how did the Phillies do yesterday. That's natural to all of us, and it's not wrong to give attention to normal, mundane, earthly things, but Paul is saying if that's the case, we must be even more careful about our Christian walk. Stop and think about it. Do you treat your walk with Christ as something that will take care of itself, or do you give careful thought and effort to it? When you, when you compare it to other things that you think about in your life. I like to work on my yard, and Patty knows how I'll come home from work, and if I've got a few hours free, I've got it all planned. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to edge this garden. I'm going to kill some weeds. I'm going to do this. You know, but ask me to clean out the garage? Oh, you know, I don't even want to think about that. That's not something that I like. We all do the things that we love to do. If you're a builder and you build homes and do construction, then you probably keep up with all the new building materials that are out there. You are careful about that. You don't want to get behind. If you're a musician and uh, you love your musical instrument, then you take time to practice it. You cultivate it. So I challenge you, when we hear this command, be very careful then how you walk. Are you being careful about your walk with God? It's challenging to think of that, isn't it? We're not called to put our walk with God on autopilot and just let it happen without any thinking. And verse 16 holds before us especially this aspect of our use of time, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil, literally redeeming the time, buying back the opportunities. There are two Greek words that could have been used here for time. One is Chronos, from we get the word chronology, speaking about time as the following of one event on another. And the other word is the one that's used here, kairos, a moment that is especially significant or favorable. Jesus uses that word in Matthew twenty six eighteen when he says, my appointed kairos, my appointed time is near. There were two weddings here in the last two days, and I was involved in the one on Friday afternoon, and I I tend to think of that word sometimes when the groomsman and the groom is standing in the robe room, and we're right here, we've rehearsed the night before, and Pat plays the last prelude piece, and the mothers of the bride and groom are seated there, and then she plays her chimes, you know, ding, dong, ding, dong, and she rings the hour, and then there's this moment, and the door opens, and we walk out. It's just very, it's this, this very pregnant pause, you might say. And the groom walks up and stands there and looks down the middle aisle to his bride coming down the aisle. It's a very, it's a very significant moment in these young people's lives. And that's the idea, making the most of the opportunity Availing yourself of the occasion, improving every opportunity for good is the sense. Seeing 
that moment as a precious commodity. Why? Because the days are evil. The days in which sin abound in this present evil age, Galatians 1.4. So the way of wisdom we're being told here is to seize these moments. It's like the hymn, take my moments and my days. Let them be in ceaseless praise to you. There's a commentator that said someone once listed this advertisement. Lost yesterday, somewhere between sunrise and sunset, two golden hours, each set with 60 diamond minutes. No reward offered, for they are gone forever. <laughs> That's an interesting, I don't know why someone would have put an ad in about that, but it's a, it's a quaint and a beautiful way to talk about the time that we have. Time, we see, is being described here as a precious commodity. And it's even more precious, really, when you think of it in light of God's sovereignty over history, that God is sovereign over the big sweep of human events, the things that make the history books, and God is sovereign over the moments of each of our lives. We're going to go out of here, and we're going to live this next week. We each have the same amount of time, and we're going to live. And the moments of our lives are given significance every moment because of the sovereignty of God and because we belong to Christ. No wonder Jonathan Edwards made his famous resolution shortly before his 20th birthday as a young man. And number 70 of those was this, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way possibly can. And to a large extent, Jonathan Edwards lived that out in his life. And that doesn't mean that there's no place for leisure. It doesn't mean that there's no place to pursue a hobby or downtime. We must be frantic about this in in this sense. But it is a very pervasive command of God, isn't it? Let me ask you to think of it this way. If God's will involves the daily moments of my life, then how am I redeeming them for good? It's amazing how seemingly insignificant daily moments looked when you look at them long-term make a big difference. Any of you kids who have practiced the piano, you know, your piano teacher tells you to practice maybe a half hour a day, maybe an hour. Probably these days, I'm guessing it's more like 20 minutes. When I was a kid, we had to practice an hour a day. And I couldn't go out to play after school until I got my hour of piano in. But the point here I'm making is this. It's amazing how much progress you can make in something like that, even practicing just 15 minutes a day. Transfer that into the spiritual realm. Think about some of the ways that we are to redeem the time. Think about the calling to pray, to meet with God, to study His Word, to memorize and to meditate on the Word of God. Psalm 1 speaks about the godly man who who meditates on God's words day and night, and he's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Or think about the moments of possible ministry in your conversations with others. It may just be one sentence or a brief interchange with someone that can be a blessing to them that will build them up and last the whole day for them, that will be a great encouragement to them. Even the way you greet someone, maybe as a parent, the way you speak to your teenager or your child or husbands, how you speak to your wives. One marriage book talks about husbands coming home from work and 
and being with their wife. And they, the one strategy they say, this book says, is husbands, try to take four minutes with your wife when you get home to just attend to her and listen to her and spend a moment or two with her. I don't know why they don't say five minutes, but I guess they're saying four. Okay, that sounds even less. Maybe the way you can redeem the time is by serving others. Really, you are able to glorify God in any mundane task of life, in any kind of ordinary, everyday way. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, the Apostle Paul says that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. And so there is this sense that belonging to Jesus Christ brings significance and meaning to every moment of the day. And we can glorify God and redeem the time even when we are doing mundane tasks because we're doing them as unto the Lord. One of the things that everyone seems to say at this time of the year is summer seems to be going so fast. Isn't isn't that how it always feels? How's your summer going? Oh, it's going fast. And before you know it, it's gone. But isn't that the way it is with all the moments God gives us? Especially when we look back a few years, we think, where has the time gone? And so the command here certainly applies to all of us, whether we're young or old, whether we have super busy lives, whether we have a lot of leisure time. Don't be haphazard in your walk with God. Be intentional. To walk in the Spirit is to be careful about our walk. Secondly, to walk in the Spirit is to diligently seek to understand God's will. To walk in the Spirit is to seek to diligently understand God's will. Verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Here we come more specifically to the issue of God's will. And we are commanded here to understand God's will. Not long before this, the Apostle Paul has said that we're to seek to please the Lord. We're to make it a goal to please Him. Other scriptures repeat this refrain in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then it concludes with this phrase, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And it's not talking about the secret will of God that you somehow know what you're going to be doing next year, but that you you test and approve by putting into practice, as the sense of the verb there, the, the will of God, the revealed will, the commands of God, the precepts of God, the principles of God's Word. That's the That's the goal. Once we've been redeemed, Paul's saying, therefore, in view of God's mercies, live this way, that you would test and approve God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so this is a vital aspect of our walk, of being able to test God's good and pleasing will. And this isn't something mysterious, somehow knowing the secret counsels of God, but it is something spiritual, It does involve God's Spirit at work in our lives as we apply the Word of God to our lives. It's something more than mere intellectual knowledge of God's will, although it certainly includes that. Here's how I would describe it. I've got a sentence here, three parts. This involves prayerful meditation, 
by the work of the Holy Spirit, resulting in wholehearted change. I want to talk a little bit about each of those. Prayerful meditation. If we are to not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is, how do we get there? Prayerfully think about God's Word. Prayerful meditation on God's Word. By various methods God gives us, reading the Bible, hearing the Bible preached and taught, studying the Bible on your own, family devotions, couples' devotions, husbands and wives, reading Christian books about God's Word, all these ways, fellow Christians in their normal conversation, talking about applying God's Word and seeking to edify each other. So the first aspect of this, if we're going to put it into practice in our lives, is prayerful meditation on God's Word. We have to think about God's Word. You're not going to be able to carry out this command uh, not to be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is if you're not thinking about the written Word of God. But then the second part of that is attended by the work of the Holy Spirit. As we meditate, we need our meditation to be helped, attended by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illuminates our minds by the Word of God and applies the Word of God specifically so that you might think to yourself, oh, I just read about... uh, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, Ephesians 4, 29. So I'm going to restrain myself from saying this. This really wouldn't help this person for me to say this right now. It's more than head knowledge, you see. It's that the Holy Spirit is at work, and he's using the raw material, so to speak, of the Word of God And he uses it to reconstruct us from within. Or you could change the analogy in saying the Holy Spirit uses the the weapon of the Word of God that's implanted in our hearts and minds so that we're convicted of the truth of God. We see the truth of God. We're encouraged. We believe the commands of God. We're blessed. And we enter into by faith into the promises of God about Jesus Christ and who we are in Christ. And so there's the meditation part, then there's the work of the Holy Spirit illuminating our hearts, and then the third part of that is it results in wholehearted change. That because of that, our affections, what we love, what moves us, what we desire, is actually remade more and more so that we want to do the will of God. If you take a practical example, let's take anger. Paul has said in chapter 4, verse 32, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. So maybe the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, is using that passage to convict us of anger in some particular area of our lives. And so we're meditating on that verse. We're asking the Holy Spirit to help us to apply it to our lives. And so when the specific daily battle comes about, and the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, then this kind of understanding what the Lord's will is means that we change more and more, that we put away our anger, that we exercise self-control, that we have more and more of a heart that's content with God. And so we're not overflowing with anger, but we're overflowing more and more with the love of Christ. It's like the analogy that if the cup Whatever is the cup is filled with, and you bump the cup, what's going to spill out? 
Well, it doesn't matter how hard you bump the cup. The question is, what's in the cup? And if it's fullness of the Spirit, delighting in Jesus Christ, knowing Him, then when life bumps us, else spills something that would bring glory to God, not anger, rage, malice, discontentment. I think Paul is, in a sense, looking back over this whole section, chapters 4 and 5, and he's, seen all, he's talked about all these things we're to put off and put on, and he's summarizing it by saying, so don't be foolish. You've heard the Word of God. You've heard these clear commands. Understand what the Lord's will is. Put it into practice in your life. That brings us to our third point. To walk in the Spirit is to seek to live daily in the power of the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit is to seek to live in the power of the Spirit. And that's where we come to in verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. There's the command put in both its negative and positive form. Don't get drunk on wine. Be filled with the Spirit. And then what follows are four participles, four characteristics of a Spirit-filled life. Speaking to one another, singing, giving thanks, submitting. These are the evidences of a Spirit-filled life. That's not simply how you get Spirit-filled, although certainly that helps for a Christian to carry out these things. We are called to be filled with the Spirit. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a passive experience. How is it that you, are, that you be filled? Well, it's through prayerful dependence on the Spirit's power. It's by faith, prayerful, believing dependence on the Spirit's power. And so we could look back to chapters 1 and chapters 3, where both of Paul's prayers have this theme. In chapter 1, verse 17, Paul's saying, May the Lord give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. There's a prayer for the Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 16, May the Lord strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner man. Paul is praying for Christians to be filled with the Spirit. Now, every Christian is filled with the Spirit in one sense. When they come to faith in Christ, they receive the Spirit. They're baptized in the Spirit. They have the Spirit. But there's another sense in which all of us are called to be filled daily with the Spirit. And we do that primarily through faith, by believing the promises of God, by looking to Jesus Christ through the Word of God for the Spirit to dwell powerfully among us. And we need to do that regularly. And I believe that we tend to live impoverished lives spiritually because we fail to be filled with the Spirit daily. Don't we all know how short we fall of this? Do you want to know what a life directed according to God's will looks like? Here it is. It's given to us right here. Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns, singing, make music in your hearts, always giving thanks, submitting to one another. That's the evidence of the fullness of the Spirit. And note that this is nothing dramatic in terms of what the world sees. It's not what the world would think of as something amazing. But really, it may make people stop and think, wow, what's different about that individual's life? That can be lived in a hospital bed. It can be lived when you're stuck at home as a young mom with preschoolers. It can be lived in a difficult work environment. It can be lived at your elementary school 
a lifestyle centered on Jesus Christ, focused on him and edifying to those around you. And notice that the calling here is to make sure that there are no substitutes for the Spirit. It's interesting how these two are put juxtaposed against one another. Do not get drunk on wine. That is the uh, brief synopsis of any substitute. It's not talking only about wine. Wine is one possible substitute. You could fill in the blank. It, it certainly includes drugs, but it also the more socially acceptable substitutes for the fullness of the Spirit. A comfortable life. Do not be filled with merely a comfortable life. Do not be filled with money only or power or controlling other people or your reputation or your job as a substitute for God or sports or your appearance or fill in the blank. Do not be drunk with wine stands as symbolic of all other substitutes for the fullness of the Spirit of God in Jesus Christ. None of these others will fit the bill. A life filled by the Spirit is a life characterized by day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute sometimes, dependence on the Lord and the need for His power. We look at the ground right now. We know it needs rain. Rain something that often is symbolic in Scripture for the Spirit's dwelling and coming upon us. And we know how desperately ground needs that. It can't go long with 95-degree weather and everything's going to wither up. And so it is with the Christian's life. We need the regular rain of the Holy Spirit upon us. It's something that we can't just work up, but we must actively trust. We must be filled in that sense. We must be controlled by the Spirit. And there's only one thing that can change us from within, and that is the Spirit's power based on the work of Christ. Jesus Christ comes, and he takes a person, and he makes him a new creation in himself by the gift of faith. And so tonight, as I talk about this, maybe the starting point for you, maybe you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Maybe you've never truly trusted in him for the first time and said, Lord Jesus, cleanse me of my sins. Grant me a new life. Give me your spirit as a gift. And maybe you need to call upon him tonight. But maybe you've walked with the Lord a long time. Dave Pallison has an interesting description of the application of this text to our lives. He says, think of it in terms of if somebody were to take a videotape of your life, your outward speech, and your inward thoughts. And he's saying, what we see here is a lot like what we see in the Psalms. He says, it would look like a continuously updated and personalized psalm if you're walking in the Spirit. Dependent asking for the Lord for help, grateful praise, honest wrestling before God with the troubles you're facing in life, actively thinking about what is true and good, speaking what honors God and helps others. And Dave Pallison is saying, that's to be your goal as you put into practice what Ephesians 5 is saying here. That we're like the writers of Psalms, not that we do that in an inspired way, but that we are like David as he wrote his Psalms. There's always this personalized, updated, daily 
minute-by-minute version of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. And so, this is God's will for you. At least as a brief summary of God's will. Be careful as you walk. Think about your walk with Christ. Use the opportunity and understand what the Lord's will is and be filled with the Spirit to the glory of God. Let us pray. Father, this may be very ordinary in terms of its application to our lives, but we know that it's supernatural. We know that it's something that only you can do. And we thank you that because we've been united to Christ, that we have received the gift of the Spirit. We pray that if somebody's here tonight who hasn't, that you would work mightily in his or her life. But we pray for each of us this week that you would teach us something more deeply about walking with you. We want to please you. We want to glorify you. We know we, we still fall short of the glory of God, and we will until the day we die or the day Jesus Christ returns. But we pray, Lord, help us to make progress in a life that is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. Amen.